Hello everyone, welcome to the Melting Pot podcast. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is as a result of my hunger for optimizing business performance, scaling up organizations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions along the way. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a high-quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at dominicmonkhouse.com. Today, I'm joined by Giles Palmer. Giles is founder and CEO of Brandwatch. And today we talk about a couple of key topics, really. We talk about one where the UK government has mandated now that businesses of a particular size share information on their gender pay gap. We talk about what happened at Brandwatch when they shared that information in a transparent but maybe uncontrolled way and how they, what lessons they learned as they found themselves as an organization battling through that and what they got out of that and where they are now and what and what mission Giles has for the organization to ensure that that gender pay gap goes to zero over the next five years. And then there was a, they merged the business with their largest US competitor. And we talk about some of the cultural challenges and the geographical challenges that has put on the business and where they are now and where they're going. Great conversation with Giles. Love talking to him as always. Hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I'm Giles Palmer. I'm the CEO and coincidentally founder of Brandwatch. Brandwatch is a, and this is a reasonably new uh, description, a digital consumer intelligence company. So what the hell does that mean? That means that we exist to help primarily brands, but also agencies understand modern consumers, who they are, how they behave, what their preferences are, what they're sharing, what they're saying, so that they can make better decisions about what they make and how they bring that to market are you doing any of the influencing or are you just measuring the impact of the influencing we're not doing any of the influencing we are what we call an in, internally an intelligence company so we try to make sense of enormous amounts of data in order that companies can understand the world a little bit more and make better decisions so we're really a data company not a influencer or marketing organization okay and so who are who are the types of brands that you work for and what what's the intelligence that they're pulling out of your platform i guess Mm. so we have something like 2500 customers the product's kind of a pro level thing so our average customer spends a few thousand dollars a month with us so it's not something that smbs really use it's it's too expensive for them it's something that SMBs could use, but the model that we've built in the organization to allow us to break even so that we can invest in product development and so on means that we need a certain amount of revenue and that and that revenue ends up being enterprise orientated. So the kinds of brands that use the product are, you know, very large FMCGs like Unilever and British Airways and British Telecom and you know these kinds of these kinds of companies. And what they do is they look at public posts, so this is all public information in aggregate, 
or we collect and put it all of Twitter, all of public Reddit, every open news site and blog and forum around the world. And we build an index and brands can, or anybody can type in whatever they want to look at or understand. And we'll give them minute by minute how often that thing has been mentioned online over the last 10 years. And then we've got a whole bunch of tools to help them analyze that conversation. What's really going on? How does it benchmark against the conversations in that area in general? Who are the influential voices? What are the topics of conversation? What's the sentiment around each brand? How does it vary by country? And so on. And with that information, they overlay that with their own sales data, their own strategy, and they try to figure out, okay, how do we match what we do to the world's needs and what everybody's saying? And then they want online. Yeah, so either they've obviously got the sales data, which is where the rubber meets the road, but it's are the messages that they're putting out resonating? What are they doing inadvertently that's getting in the way? Mm. And also category research. So if you sell shampoos, you want to look at what people are saying about hair care all over the world. And weirdly, turns out that South Korea has more interesting early conversations around hair care trends than any other country in the world. More hair care trends start in South Korea than anywhere else, which is bizarre. But you only, well, it's bizarre to a you know, somebody living on the south coast of England is probably not bizarre to, to South Korea. <laughs> so, but you only get that from being able to look at the entire conversation around hair care. And same would you look at coffee and coffee trends come out of San Francisco on the whole. And again, it's difficult to predict that. Like if I'd asked you that question, you might not have come up with the answer. But when you look at the data, that's what the data tells you. Can you also see how quickly then it propagates, you know, a trend, how long it takes to build, then it propagates. So you're you're able to give that forward-looking analysis to your clients that they would... Well, historic, but then you can make predictions yeah. because you can look at what's happened in the past and say, well, this is the way it looks like it's going. I mean, obviously, with like forecasting the weather, the further you go out, the harder it gets. But you can say that this thing's beginning to happen. Coconut water started in wherever it started and it started taking off and and then more products came to market and certain brands were more positive than others and and we can predict that coconut water will be continued to be tr- uh, a trend over the course of 2019 for example and for the large kind of drinks companies that's really interesting and how often do you get it right versus not get it right it's not so much about us getting it right it's more about how often are there signals because the data is the data, right? We collect this enormous amount of data and then we've got, I guess we do have algorithms which are getting better and better at understanding natural language. And then we've got image recognition kind of algorithms as well that can pull out, you know, this product tends to get seen when in outdoor scenes, when, you know, when there's gatherings of people or whatever, whatever it is, there's ways of interpreting images. So there's the analysis is getting more sophisticated, but the underlying data is the thing that we're trying to, kind of shine a light on and then and then the question is is there signal in the noise and if there is how strong is it and how important is it and what should people do about it do you only go looking for signals where you already have a client or are you looking for everything and the signal helps biz dev it's like a search engine we get everything so you can search for anything and then the signal algorithms that kick in Kick in on a specific search query. So if you were to search for, you're wearing an Under Armour t-shirt. If you were to search for Under Armour t-shirts, 
and you get all of the chat around Under Armour t-shirts and pictures of anybody wearing an Under Armour t-shirt because we can identify the logo. And then there's some trend that happens. Orange seems to be something that is trending this month. You're very on on topic, uh, (laughs) Dom. That signal is specific to that query, to that data set. And the system automatically pulls out all of that sort of stuff. And then the users can write rules to say, if this, then that, basically. If somebody mentions uh, Nike with the same sentence as Under Armour, tag it as competitor or something like that. And so there's limitless number of kind of rules and tags that you can add to the data. And then it can go back over 10 years and apply those tags and, and do it in real time. And then there's an alerting system, which is, this is new. We've seen something happening here, which we've never seen before kind of thing. Or there are more people talking about Under Armour in France this week than there were last week by a factor of five, something's going on. And this, these are the articles that they're sharing and so on and so forth. So there's a kind of a PRE side to it as well. But we really think of ourselves as a digital consumer intelligence company, which is like, what are consumers saying, doing, feeling, thinking, sharing? And how can we shine a light on that? And then we bought a company a couple of months ago called Curiously, which is a mobile survey company. So as well as you know, looking at online conversational data, you can now go out to 2 billion mobile devices and ask direct questions, which just pop up in people's apps. So if you're looking at a weather app, there might, a question might pop up at the bottom saying, how old are you, just to kind of qualify whether you're you know, a kid or a grown-up. And if you're over 18, it might say, have you ever bought an Under Armour T-shirt? Yes. Does it fit better than X, Y, Z? Or, or whatever, whatever. You can ask any kind of questions so that our customers can then take something which looks like it's emerging from online conversation and then do a specific kind of check and say, is this true? And to what extent? And, they, and you can ask 10 people or you can ask 100,000 depending on how much money you want to spend because we've got to buy the ads. Yeah. And how long has the business been going? 12 years. And so is this very different from the business you founded in terms of what you do? It's not very different. It's an evolution of the business that I founded. The business that I founded was really based on the idea that people like you and I are having conversations online. or will. So it's a combination of two things. When I was a kid, if I wanted to buy something, I would go out and do lots of research. I would buy the bike magazines or the hi-fi magazines, and I would find out which ones were highly rated. And then I would find out where they were sold for my budget. And then I would go and buy them. So the sellers, if you like, I tried to ignore what the sellers were saying. And I was trying to look at like expert reviewers. And the internet's kind of democratized that idea so that there's TripAdvisor and there's Yelp and there's forums on money-saving expert and so on. So if you want to do some research around anything, the internet is your friend, right? So brands, they're not going to spend their whole time doing this research. Well, possibly they, they are, possibly they should be, but it's hard. So we kind of came up with this idea that they need to watch and listen to what we're all saying so that they can understand consumers and then make better decisions. So that was the original nucleus of the idea. And now, 12 years later, I obviously started it when I was somewhat younger. We've kind of expanded that out to be digital consumer intelligence in general. Like, let's try to understand the world more, you know, better so that we can make better decisions, we being organizations. That's what we exist to Solve for, and in some ways, it's akin to market research, but it's using very different techniques. And with the onset of you know enormous amounts of data, incredibly fast computational power, and amazing software, and we're bringing a different kind of 
approach to consumer intelligence. And what do you, what are the biggest things over the horizon or or the biggest challenges you've got at the moment in terms of the technology? Is, I mean, is there something you're about to be able to do or? Kind of, like with any breakthrough tech always takes years and years and years. So I'm always super excited about what we're going to do next. I think it's just going to you know radically change our business and then it changes it by 1%. So... <laughs> It's bizarre, actually. Ever the optimist, though. Ever the optimist. Yeah, I'm still as enthusiastic as I was 12 years ago, and I still love doing what we're doing, which is probably why we've been, you know, reasonably successful because we just we just kind of show up to work and do our best because we actually re- are really into it. The money and the success and all that sort of that's not the motivation, but the challenge, and this is also a really interesting talking point, the challenge around data privacy data availability data how data gets used is really interesting right so you talk about data privacy and even use words like surveillance and scary words like this or consumer intelligence it sounds certainly to an american ear intelligence sounds quite covert and quite black arts as it were black ops and of course facebook have have had the cambridge analytica scandal which is you know that was private data that was an access to you know, your friend's data, which they had no idea that it was being shared with a company called Cambridge Analytica. We're not anywhere close to that sort of nonsense. But the whole data privacy thing is is interesting. So, so you've got the Cambridge Analytica worst case scenario that private data is being shared by people that didn't know it was being shared and used for purposes that they don't understand. So that's clearly bad. Need to stop that. But then on the other end, when you share data, you get extraordinary Benefits, like in internet age, Wikipedia, Twitter, Facebook, Yelp, TripAdvisor, every single, you know, Reddit, every single most influential sites on the internet are in some way about consumers sharing information with each other, LinkedIn, Glassdoor, it goes on and on. And, you know, if you go back a couple of hundred years, you have the printing press was the first time that data was written down and, and then shared in a way that was efficient. And these kind of mass sharing devices, these ways of harnessing collective intelligence or the bringing people's kind of minds together and for the common good, you know, represent massive step changes in the evolution of the human race, in my opinion. And of course, we have to make sure that we're protecting privacy and making sure that data is not used for nefarious purposes. But for me, the benefits of data sharing and harnessing, you know, if you can also bring in AI to kind of make sense of this information, the, the benefits are enormous. And in our area, text and opinion and thought, that's obviously one thing. If you look at it in medical science or genomics or whatever, the benefits can be absolutely extraordinary. So I think the conversation around data sharing and also who benefits from that because what we don't want is a few very large companies benefiting from it and then just like kind of stopping, you know, owning it and then taxing everybody else to get access to it, all that sort of stuff. That's obviously something for society to kind of like really lean into and dig in on. You know, it's the Noah Harari kind of kind of conversation, which I think is super interesting. But overall, for me, sharing of data and and making sense of collective data is utterly fascinating and a fundamental force for for good in my opinion very good well i mean the thing is it used to be you could 
I mean, even if you should take, you know, take restaurants on your local high street, you know, you would have to walk past several of them at right time and see how busy they were and then make a decision. And now you can find the best one. And who would want to go to the third best curry restaurant on your high street? Yeah, I mean, just... Yeah, um, yeah I was just in Biarritz a couple of weeks ago with some locals and we were looking for a place to eat in the evening. And, you know, she was like, well, I think there's a place down here. And I just jumped on to TripAdvisor, I think it was, and just searched for the ones that were open that were reasonably highly rated. And I found us one in like in less than a minute. And she was like, oh, I didn't even know this one existed. It was like, <laughs> that's great, huh? That's, we had an amazing meal with crazy Spanish music. It was amazing. We would have never found it otherwise. So I'm all in on this stuff, but with the right protections and with transparency, obviously. Well, and that it's not fake. Oh, yeah. Well, what is fake? Whenever there's an opinion put out there, you could argue that is changing the truth slightly. So I don't think fake is a binary thing myself. Well, I suppose what I meant was I pay you to write a review for something when you've never seen it and you have no idea. You don't care. Yeah, that's full fake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like <laughs> at one end, there's 100% that's fake. And then the interesting stuff for me is the stuff in the middle where it's like, ooh, that's a right wing opinion. Like for a left wing person, that's kind of fake news or vice versa, right? But it isn't necessarily fake. It's an opinion or a, a view on the truth, an interpretation of the truth. But you're right, like fake reviews, 100%. We've got to get rid of those sorts of things. Maybe that's uh, the thinking about the way in which you present information and it's consumed is a good way to segue into how you battled a challenge in your own organization about presenting, <laughs> presenting information and how it was consumed. I don't know what you're pointing <laughs> to here. Well, I'll tell the story, shall I? Yeah, go on, tell the story, because I think it's, I it was a great tale when you told it to me. It's about two years ago now. So one of the things that the UK government has done that's, I think, a very positive thing is bringing in a simple calculation for how you calculate what men and women are paid in companies. You take the aggregate number of hours that men are paid, the aggregate number of hours that women are paid, the amount of money that they've each have been paid and you just do a simple division and then you get a number an average hourly rate now if you've got 250 people or more in your organization you have to publish this information it's, it's a new law we had about 220 people about two years ago in our uk organization and our head of hr correctly or head of our people team as we call it correctly said well we don't care about this 250 number we're going to publish it anyway it's the right thing to do and then she left the company, came around to the published date, and we did the calculation, and somebody in the finance team uploaded it, or HR team, I can't remember who, doesn't matter who it was, frankly, uploaded it to the government website on the day of the deadline, like the day. The next day, I come into work, and in Slack, a young woman in the company had written in our Women in Technology channel. We've got a Women in Technology channel. Oh, did anybody see this? Our gender pay gap is 22%. It's just been uploaded to the government website. So a few things there. Number one is I didn't know it was 22%. I didn't know it had been uploaded to the government website. So huge internal communication breakdown. You know, screw up, frankly. That's on all of us, but on me. And also 22%, it's, pretty, it's a pretty big number. That's, you know, let's talk about the material thing here. And then a whole bunch of people started commenting saying, 
oh my God, that's awful. And I, they're trying to hide it from us by not telling us and all of this. And then us and them thing came out. And we've never really had that in Brandwatch because, you know, we start off with a small number of people and the people that started the company, most of us are still here. So there's not really much of an us and them. I mean, my job now is very different to how it was 12 years ago, but still I feel like I'm part of the rank and file, even though I'm not treated that way so much anymore. Anyway, the whole thing just went crazy. And then I stepped into the Women in Technology channel and said, can you bear with us, please? We haven't done the analysis yet on why there's a 22% pay gap. We can't draw conclusions until we've done the analysis. To which one of our people said something like, I haven't got the exact thing in my mind, but can you stop mansplaining this, please? Just give us the data. I'm an analyst. I'll do the work. So I was like, blimey. And then it just got really bad. And we started doing the analysis. We hadn't done the analysis. Why is there a 22% pay gap? So there was scrambling, our CMO and me and uh, one of our analysts internally were just meeting every other hour, kind of crisis war room type meetings to talk about talk about this. The analysis that we did, it wasn't very good. It didn't actually tell a particularly open, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't helpful. Time went by, it was awful. And then so four days or three days later, we called an all hands meeting. And I just sat at the front with our CMO and the woman that put the, the data together. And we had an hour and a half of very frank and very intense discussion where I basically apologized for A, the way we handled it, but secondly, stepping into the Women in Technology channel and not doing the first thing, which I should have done, which is to apologize and own it rather than saying, can you stop talking about this, please? So, I mean, I learned a lot about a lot of things that week. It was probably the worst working week of my life in terms of the stress I was under and how hard I found it. But I came out of it with new understandings and a new appreciation for for how important this subject is and, and frankly how bad a job we had done up to that point really seeing that this was a problem. We've gone through the second version of that this year and actually the numbers only come down to 21, I think, 21 or 20. So it's still a pretty high level, but we've made a commitment that within, I say a commitment, I've said within five years, it will be at zero. The challenge for us is that the higher you go up in the company, the less represented women were, and to a degree still are, and the higher up people tend to get paid more. So it's not that we pay different amounts for people doing the same job, which is A, illegal, and secondly, appalling. We looked at that analysis, okay, but there aren't that many jobs that are, we don't have lots of the same jobs here. So, but where there are the same jobs and where being done by men and women that, you know, there is no gap, but it's more about management roles. And then what, we, what we've seen is this interesting triangle. So if you imagine like a triangle like this and the lower layer is less well-paid people, more junior people, and, and the top is more senior people, high, higher paid. And at the lower layer, it's almost 50-50. It's not 50-50 because we've got a large engineering department, software engineering department, and that is no, not even close to 50-50. So there's a whole lot of stuff to talk about there. But as you go further up, the proportion of women declines. And that's been a huge focus for us. Why is it that we've got fewer women at senior le levels? And obviously, there's the kind of women take time out to have families and stuff, or at least give birth which obviously men don't do. But then there's a kind of, what can we do to support a more balanced, or if people want to make the choice to have a more balanced parenting scenario so that women can work maybe part-time or share jobs 
what can we do to stop this leaking of women as you go further up in the company? And then they take five years out and they come back at the same level that they were and the men are, are progressed over that time and it's a massive problem. So, And is it also exacerbated by the fact that the first 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 people were more men than women? So that in that sort of upper echelons... Yes, probably. So, like, you know, that, that sort of longevity of service is probably weighted towards... Oh, I see what you mean. Um, possibly. We've cycled the top team. Uh, like, there's only not so much, actually, uh, because as the company's grown, like, we're now, this year, we'll do kind of close to $120 million in revenues. And the team that could, you know, do a startup, with the right team for a startup, are not the right team to run a 600-person, $120 million dollar business there's just it's just a different mindset different people one's an organizational challenge and the other is an innovation you know zero to one challenge maybe the thinking that was embedded in the early organization because it was founded by four men was quite male but i think it's actually a lack of realization of our problem because you don't look around and say oh where are all the women you know or, or how can we support women more or what's going on here why are there no women what is it that we've done wrong or what what is it about this environment that doesn't encourage women to join and progress. One woman I interviewed for a senior role, she said, well, I looked at your company and your whole board was male and your entire leadership team was male. This was a few years ago, four or five years ago. And I was like, yeah, you're absolutely right. And interestingly, and she was like, that really put me off. The idea that I would want to join a company where I was the only woman, was like, no thanks, don't want to be involved in that. So that's a problem. With the board, it's tougher because I don't choose the board, but the senior team I do. So... We just expanded the senior team. There were five men, and now there's 11, and I think it's six men and five women. So I just made it bigger and also changed some people. But um, the biggest thing we did was just like expand the leadership team and bring in women. And it changed the dynamic in the leadership team for the better, dramatically, instantaneously. But it was tough because the women came into quite a kind of male environment, and now it's not like that at all. But... For them, it was like the first couple of meetings were like, oh, that wasn't so enjoyable. And I was like, no, you're not. You're right. It wasn't so enjoyable. And thank God we've got people like you here to help us actually evolve a bit. And then we brought in leadership coach, team coach. We've really lent into this as a kind of a problem because it has been a problem. And now, you know, there are some people in the engineering department who look at the fact that the engineering department is like 80% male. And they've put, they've basically said, okay, here's a plan to get it closer to 50-50 over a three, four-year period, we need £400,000 a year on top of our existing budgets to do this. And it's like, if we as an organization say no to that, then they would rightly say, well, well, how serious are you? You know, if you want to make a change, then there's this whole list of things that we want to do, but it costs money. We need to sponsor more coding for girls and for women. We need to have an education program in schools and universities. We need to commit to this because we're not going to make a difference unless we do. So it's been one hell of a two-year ride, and it's definitely going in the right direction, but still it's 20% gender pay gap. That's got to go. So I've got to, we, not me, we have got to take out 5% per year out of that in order to get to the target of zero in five years' time. What are you going to do differently next year then for your 5%? A whole list of things. It's not just one button. Let's look at encouraging more women into more leadership positions That's, and how do we do that with training with mentoring with coaching with allowing them to do these jobs part-time have you done anything with recruitment i certainly i was talking to somebody recently who said to be in a position that they could hire have the option to hire female candidates 
they when they were working with their recruiters or their internal recruitment team, they don't start interviewing until they've got a balanced shortlist. I'm actually moving even further than that. I've female-only shortlists for some key roles going forwards. And that's, I remember you and I had this gathering we were at and one of the women in the room was like, I think that's bullshit. I don't want to have it given to me. I don't want a female-only shortlist because I want to compete fairly and squarely with the, with the market. By all means, keep on looking until you find a balanced shortlist, but female-only shortlist is actually counterproductive. And I can totally see where she was coming from. I would probably feel exactly the same. My response to her was, I'm optimizing for the team, not the individual. So where the team isn't balanced, and I want to get balanced, the only way to do that is to basically say, well, this is a woman is going to fill this position, and we're going to find the best woman for this role that we can. But that will have a positive effect on the team, and the performance of the company will improve, and the performance of the team will improve because of, because of the diversity, because of the balance. Even if we don't have the very best candidate, even if there's some guy out there who's better than all of the women on the shortlist, I don't care. I'm optimizing for the team, not the individual in, the, in this particular thing. And, and I think that's, I find that I can defend that and I feel okay about that. But I can understand why some people would say that that's not right. I said to you when we were there chatting about it, you know, at Rackspace, I deliberately went out of my way to hire female salespeople. Because otherwise, we would have looked like another tech firm with 95% blokes and the only women in the company would have been in HR and finance and marketing. And it worked for you, right? It totally. We ended up with a sort of 60-40 male-female split. And the sales team wasn't a men's locker room. You know, when the US were going to strip clubs, the UK wasn't. We ended up with a very different type of organization and a better organization. Yeah. But on culture, though, and... U.S. You you acquired a U.S. business. Well, we merged. I mean, there was no cash changed hands. It was a share swap, and you know we were a sixty million dollar business. They were a forty million dollar business. So it was we were very similar sizes, and we did exactly the same thing. We were each our number one competitor. We were theirs. They were ours. Really interesting. You know, imagine that negotiation where you basically have to tell your number one competitor exactly how your product works and unearth all of your financials the only thing that we redacted was the actual names of the customers in the customer list but everything else we shared because we just thought look if this is going to work if we're going to actually get to a deal and then have a work have great working relationships with each other we've got to be honest and open i mean anything else would just feel like counterproductive so so we did we kind of we went in with with a transparent mindset and they did too and they were terrific people so and then we spent the summer kind of negotiating last year so, so these things always take longer than than you expect so <laughs> i was expecting the deal to be kind of either done or not done as it were for in kind of mid-august or something so i booked a week's holiday in sardinia and it was still ongoing so i was out there with my family and we went out in a boat and we were still negotiating so there's this picture of me on this boat in the med, little speedboat, like small thing, with a t-shirt over my head to stop the wind from <laughs> getting involved in the telephone conversation, you know, talking about the deal while my kids were just swimming around in, in the med. And Katia, my partner, she wrote, she took a picture and sent it to the our internal leadership Slack channel saying how the deal was really done. The picture <laughs> of me with a t-shirt over my head. So we did that deal. Uh, we completed it in October, actually. The whole thing was done in October. And we've integrated the product. So we've taken these two products that were competing against each other and they were 
designed independently. This company was 10, 11 years old as well. Very similar sort of history. And we've basically smashed the two together into one product. And that was the thing. We actually took about a month doing the due diligence and the investigation on how we would do this before we even started talking about the, the financials of the deal because it was the big risk. It's like, you know, we can't throw away these two products. And there were some things that, this company's called Crimson Hexagon. There were some things that the Crimson Hexagon product did really, really well. And there were some things that the Brandwatch product did really, really well. And we wanted to try to take the best of both. And we, as it turns out that there was architecturally a way of doing it that wasn't that difficult. And what we'll have when we launch it on the 1st of October is a product that is better by pretty much every metric than either of the two that it came from. But we've taken nine, uh, 11 months and most of, 80% of the engineering team have just been working on integrating the product. And we're now user testing the first V1 of the integrated product and we're launching it in, in October. So it's been A, a massive engineering and product task, but then bringing, there were about, so there were 420 people in Brandwatch and 200 and, 30 people in Crimson Hexagon, so about 650. And we cut 100 on day one, which was brutal. But it got the combined organization into a very strong financial situation. So the company, if you added all up, added the numbers up last year, it would have been roughly $95 million turnover and losing a bunch of money. And we created a profitable company, you know, within three, four months. It was hard, really hard. And then we had to integrate everybody, integrate the teams, integrate the systems, which still is like, that's a big work in progress and integrate the product. So it's been probably the hardest working year of my life. I mean, really, really tough. There are so many challenges, cultural challenges and, you know, who's in charge of what and who reports to who and how we, how's this going to work and all this kind of stuff. It really, really tough. But there is a bit of light at the end of the tunnel now, which I'm looking forward to. So I'm looking forward to Q4. I think Q4 is going to be a really good quarter for us. And then we should be set up for 2020 in a good place. And then we we can get back to just kind of running a kind of a normal business with a kind of organic growth. Just competing in the marketplace. Yeah. Well, exactly. And not being so, in, exactly. Not so internally focused, worrying about ourselves all the time and how we're doing stuff. Ah, let's talk about what our customers want and what, where the world's going and, and so on. You'll be able to relate to this. When you're growing a business, it's hard and there's times which are, you know, really tough and there's times which are a bit easier. But broadly, there's a kind of, you know, it feels like you're just walking up a staircase sort of thing. It's, it's somewhat predictable and it's a kind of human rate, you know, it's real time sort of thing. When you bring the two businesses together and you go up a step, which is you need a ladder to get up there, right? So, so it's a disconnect, which is so different to anything that's come before. And it was no matter how much planning and how much energy and how much communication you put into it, that change is so dramatic for everybody in the organization. There's trauma, basically. Everybody is just like in a bit of shock about that. Like, we're not used to this. This is just different and unusual. And Well, and also it totally throws off all of your other momentum because you had that sort of product sales, customer service, customer journey, everybody's busy. You don't have hundreds of people sitting around with nothing to do. And then all of a sudden people's plans, there is this, that grief because there's a thing you're working on and you're told, mostly told not to work on it anymore. Yeah. And so you, you just feel like you've wasted your time. And, and there's empty chairs, you know, where your colleagues used to sit and they've, you know, they're not part of the combined go forwards organization. So 
there were three reasons for doing it. One is we create, there is an investor reason. We create a more profitable, biggest company in, in, in the industry. So yeah, fair enough. Okay. Spreadsheet. You can't kind of argue with that. And, and, and we'll deliver on that. Actually, the first two are wrapped into it. The first is we create the number one. Second is it's profitable and, and spreadsheet. You know, it's a synergy-based kind of roll-up. And then the third, and the third most interesting for me, is that once the product migration is done, or the product integration is done, we've got almost 200 people in engineering and product and product design. And that is a, an innovation engine which is way bigger than what we had before, plus a product that is the best in the market. So as a go-forwards organization, once all of the dust has settled and we've organized things and, you know, la, 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 from 20 onwards or October 1st onwards, then then we're into kind of, okay, what are we going to do now? We've got this resources. We've both, from a money and a people perspective, let's do something really, really interesting. So that's the promise. That's the thing that excited me, and I can't wait to get there, frankly. And what was the most unexpected cultural challenge was there a thing where you look back over the last 12 months and you go you know what we just didn't see that coming well there's there's a few little you know individual people things which i won't talk about but the the ones that i'll pick on two so we put a lot of time and effort into the product planning and product risk management and the enps on our product and engineering teams are higher than they've ever been because we've really really lent it on it systems and operations, we kind of thought, okay, well, they're less important, they're less risky, we'll kind of get to that. But actually, we've left it too long. And the EMPS of our finance team and our operations teams are lower than they've ever been. So there's like a tale of two cities, it's like completely different. A real surprise to me is how hard the systems and operations kind of combination uh, has been. So we got to get that right next year or going forwards because those guys are just pulling massive shifts just to keep the lights on around that, like how data works and billing and all that kind of stuff. Well, it's interesting if you look at the Gallup Q12 measure of staff engagement. Question two, it's sort of in the pyramid is I've got the tools that you know allow me to do a good job. It's a question about tools, but really it links back to purpose. And it, what it's saying is, does this company believe what it tells me it wants to do? Because if it did, it would give me the tools to do the job that I'm capable of doing. That's so interesting. It reminds me of McKinsey and Google. So McKinsey, just like they wrap their consultants, you know, they do everything for them so that their consultants can go ahead and do the best job that they can. And Google gives you free food and free everything in order that you can do what you want. I mean, the cynic will say in order to keep you at the Googleplex, but I still think that it's um, actually giving people the ability to do the best that they can, I think is critical. And we haven't done a great job of that this year, for sure. The other thing that has been interesting is we have like, now we've got 10 offices. And before the Brandwatch US office was in New York, the big, and there was about 100 people there. Crimson Hexagon's head office is in Boston. And Brandwatch head office is in Brighton in the UK. So head office is still arguably Brighton more. There are more execs here than anywhere else. But now we've got four execs in Boston. The New York teams are like, well, hang on a second, are we now subordinate to the Boston office? And so there's a kind of pecking order thing, which I think is somewhat, I don't know if there's an answer to it really, because I, I don't see this kind of head office thing as, I don't see it that way myself. But then again, I'm the CEO, so it doesn't affect me so much. Well, it's interesting. What we, what we did at Pier 1 is we said, we don't care where the job is and we don't care where your manager is or your executive is. And so for every job that we had available in the company, we advertised it at every office. And software development ended up 
a big chunk of software development ended up migrating from San Antonio, Texas to Southampton because we could hire better people in software development in Southampton than we could anywhere else and any other other offices. And so then it breaks down the, we're only going to hire people where execs are. It's like, we're going to, we've got 10 offices. Let's hire people where the best talent is. That's really interesting. Then everybody needs to get good at managing a remotely disparate workforce. Yeah, which is hard. It's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think managing remotely across different time zones is, I'm sure there's a massive, there's a few podcasts in that for sure. (laughs) Look, um, we're running out of time. If you could go back in time, not just Brandwatch, but, you know, even before that, is there something you know now that you think taking this back with me in time, this would be funny, faster, more impact? Yeah, I guess it depends on... So for me personally, if I could go back to 21 years old, I'd move to Silicon Valley. I mean, <laughs> I kind of knew it at the time as well, right? You know, it was... I mean, this, we're talking 1991 and there was no software business in the UK. I mean, why, why on earth I didn't make that jump i don't know but it was uh i think that would have been a fun place to have been in the 90s and early 2000s going back to the beginning of brand watch oh, there's so many in every area there's things that i would do i would do differently um i would put in place you know proper metering and measuring for anything that we do so that we could actually figure out whether it's working or not much earlier there's we've made far too many decisions on the basis of this is what i think this is what i think you know bullshit you know personality driven kind of decision making and even today i don't think our product our product analysis or customer analysis metrics give us all of the right information to be able to make the right decisions about what we do next so structuring that up front is critical because like when you're in flight you don't take time to say ah okay now let's build in tracking here 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 here. it's it's hard i've always been a a huge admirer of the way that google do all of this a b testing in order to go further and further and further and i I just think that mentality of building in that discipline of data-driven decision making and experimentation we should have prioritized it more early on one that i never ever thought would be an issue until it was an issue was total addressable market. So when we started off Brandwatch, the idea that the idea that <laughs> the, the market size would be a problem was like, were well, you kidding? We're happy with making a couple of hundred grand a year. And now we're doing, you know, 120 million a year. It's like our market size starts to be a bit of an issue, which is one of the reasons why we're taking a long-term view and saying, you know, digital consumer intelligence is, is where we're going because that's that's a vast problem to solve or we also think of it as total addressable problem rather than total addressable market. But the TAM, total addressable market, was something that became an issue. So if I was starting again, I'd start a company in a big marketplace, in a big market space. I mean, it sounds crazy and like, you know, it's a bit Jeff Bezos, whatever, only, only. But it is something that became a bit of an issue. Lastly, are there any book books that have made a difference to you that you think other yeah, what I'm reading right now, Team of Teams by General McChrystal is really interesting, really interesting. I love Jaron Lanier's writing. I don't know if you've read any of his stuff. He's this kind of early uh, Silicon Valley guy that writes very thoughtfully about stuff. Obviously, the Ben Horowitz book was great. And actually, Rand Fishkin wrote one that was a little bit similar around his journey with Moz. Those are two CEO entrepreneur books that are definitely worth reading because they make you realize that as a CEO entrepreneur, all of the 
crap that you have to deal with all of the things that go wrong and all of the challenges are like oh this is normal you know <laughs> it's normal it's not easy it's all it's normal so those two books are fabulous as well all right giles thank you very much indeed for being my guest today thanks tom All this information and more can be found at dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find show notes, additional reading and links related to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of the Melting Pot newsletter. The simplest thing to do is to sign up to my subjectively, not crap, once a week newsletter, where I'll update you on what I've been up to, the most interesting articles I've read, and all things relating to scaling up, high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. Social, you can find me on Twitter at Dom Monkhouse and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse. LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me and share your questions and comments. Thanks for listening. <laughs>